how are we going to get people to care when we're just like two black girls from South London? We had such fear that we didn't want to play to an empty crowd. So the fact that a week after the book came out, back in 2018, we walked out to 300 black women and black men as well. That was humbling. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to say a big thank you to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company whose learning journeys and experiences help organizations such as John Lewis, Sony, and the NHS who want to grow, change, or transform by putting the learner first to optimize organizational performance. We've been huge fans of Alchemist for years and really admire the way in which they approach blended learning that allows people to explore concepts and ideas in a new and unique way. To find out more about Alchemist and the way they work with organisations, head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 Minute Mentor. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to make mentorship more accessible by interviewing brilliant leaders who are building exceptional purpose-driven brands. Today, I'm joined by the brilliant Elizabeth Uve Binene, the multi-award winning author and columnist of the Financial Times and founder of the exciting new startup, Storia. Elizabeth started a career in marketing before becoming a hugely successful author. She's published five books, including her debut bestseller, Slay in Your Lane, The Black Girl Bible, which won many awards and was critically acclaimed. Her regular FT column highlights the founders, tech and networks that are changing how we work and live and is a must read that has featured a number of startup founders that have come on 40 Minute Mentor, like Alexia and Margot de Broglie from Your Gino. I've had the great pleasure of meeting Elizabeth a couple of times before and loved her career story and energy. So I was super excited that she agreed to come on the podcast to share her mentorship with you all today. So welcome, Elizabeth. It's great to have you here. How are things today? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, we want to get to know you with uh, our usual quickfire questions, and then we're going to dive into your story. So please finish these sentences after me. My first ever job was? Student caller at Warwick University. Oh, that's a good one. Do you know what, actually? It wasn't my first job, but I did, at the end of the year, my last year at school, I did this uh, telephone campaign where I was doing that. So it's a good grounding, that. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, and I made so much money. It was the best job on campus. So, yeah, it was like sitting there for three hours. And I got paid like £14 an hour or something. Back then was a lot. Yeah, that's loads. Oh, nice. Brilliance to me means? Being yourself and being authentic. Love that. I wish I could be better at? Design. Ah, okay. Why is that? Is that something that you struggle with a bit? You know, I love things looking a particular way. And I've always had amazing people around me that have been able to kind of bring my vision to life. I wish I could do that myself and be a better graphic designer because I just I really appreciate it yeah I do you know what I feel, I feel it's like the same way we've got a fantastic head of marketing Hannah who is much more creative and I'm always very envious about how she can turn the things that I create into decent looking uh, materials a misconception people have about me is I think a misconception about me is because I'm like five one. people definitely think I'm taller than I am because of my personality I always say I'm not a big personality but I would say that I'm a forceful personality so I think that people are always shocked to realize I'm only 5'1 um they meet me and they're always like gosh you're so small and I'm like yeah I am um sort of thing so that's probably the only misconception I probably get more than any time I love that yeah my uh, auntie Mita 
who is actually about a metre tall. I think she's like five foot on the nose or maybe 4'11". She is like this powerhouse. She's retired now, but she's a powerhouse corporate lawyer and barrister solicitor. And you'd never, ever mess with her. And yet she is, she's not the tallest. So I, I know there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to her as well. So I, can, I totally get that. Finally, Elizabeth, can you share something we wouldn't learn from your CV, a perceived failure or setback in your career that you've learned a lot from? Yeah. So when Yomi and I were pitching agents, as you do when you have a book idea back in what, I think 2015 now, we sent it to one agent who we thought would be perfect because she had represented women who were writing around the topic of feminism and things like that. And at that time, that wasn't a lot of authors. That was quite niche, um, surprisingly. So we thought, that's great. She's our agent. Like she's going to totally get what we're doing with Same Lane. Like she's going to get it. And we sent her our proposal with a sample chapter, waiting to hear back eagerly. And she turned us down, essentially. And she said that the writing wasn't very good and she could, you know, could do with some work. And she took a dig at our proposal. And our proposal wasn't your typical publishing proposal. So it wasn't on the word doc with just, you know, basic this is what the book is like as they kind of as the formula suggests that you should do it was a InDesign file that in compressed pdf it had pictures of like beyonce because the men just came out that time it was very eclectic and it was very bold and it was very different and it was like this is the sort of color palette we're going for for the book this is the sort of thing it was very energetic and it was amazing looking back it was ahead of its time and she said well I think that you have to realise that a lot of publishers will want to have a say about how this whole thing is going to look like. It's not just it's not just up to you. And I remember that really annoyed me. And it was a setback because we had kind of seen her as one of the few people that would understand it and, and totally get it. And when it didn't happen, it knocked us back temporarily because we were like, oh, maybe this isn't as big as we think it could be. Or this isn't as like what like we kind of had that. I would say probably like five minutes internal crises. And then I remember walking through Tesco's after work and I was on the phone to you and we were talking about it. And I said to her, I was like, nah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Like, no, we have to stick to what we're doing. And that, and, and we both kind of agreed that she doesn't know what she's talking about and look at how everything turned out. And I think that my lesson from that is not everybody will understand, but sometimes it's not your job to tell someone and convince people, it's to show them. And that's even what I'm learning with Storia. I've definitely had people not totally understand, okay, from get-go, or oh, how does writing help you? Or what is this? And, and I just keep remembering, not everyone will get it. It's only until it's done that people will claim to it that they always understood and they were always with you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Yeah, that is brilliant. And I think a lot of people listening to this that that may be going through some knockbacks at the moment. And uh, I think it's sort of good to take feedback at times, but also there are sometimes you are trying something, you're creating something new, innovative, creative, and perhaps like the old guards are not the right people for you. And you need to find your tribe that will back you and believe in your idea. And that's all you need is one person. And some of the greatest stories, some of the greatest startups, some of the greatest things that have happened in life are from somebody taking a risk and I think it's so important to kind of keep faith in yourself and your ideas. And I love the fact that you did. And look, whoever ended up backing you did very well out of it, I'm sure, and is hugely grateful for taking the punt. And I'm sure the person that missed out is probably kicking themselves now, but that's uh, very much their loss. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really keen to dig into your story a bit more. So can you tell us a bit about 
your childhood? What was a young Elizabeth like? And how did it shape you into the person you are today? So I was probably a curious child. Yeah, I was definitely an annoying child that would ask questions like, why this? Why that? I was very argumentative. And that didn't obviously go down well in school or at home. So I definitely learned to, over the years, like pick my battles because I realised that being like that isn't always the best thing. But that still shows up in my life day to day, to be honest, and being very forthright about what I think and being very strong in like my opinions. I grew up in Peckham. So I was born in Nigeria, Lagos, came to England when I was five years old and then grew up in Peckham. So that's like coming from Lagos to mini Lagos. You can imagine just the way Peckham was like back in 95 or something. I grew up around lots of siblings. I didn't grow up with my mum, which I would say that that shaped me. I had like my stepmom and my dad and, and family members, but I would say that that definitely shaped how I see a lot of like my female friendships and like my friendships with women, especially because I think I really treasure those relationships above a lot of the relationships that I have. Like me and mum are really close now, but yeah, we didn't have that mother-daughter relationship for the first, I'd say maybe maybe like 18 years of my life. So that was very transformative for sure, not having her. But I think, yeah, always being one of the gang, sometimes leading it and being that sort of kid for sure. Amazing. Thank you. That's really interesting. And uh, it's funny how like those sort of formative views often kind of really help shape the sort of leader that you are in the future. And I guess, you know, we're going to come on to uh, your story of, of building a startup shortly. But um, I know you started your career working in, in marketing at HBC. So we hear from a lot of people that they sort of, a bit like with recruitment, they stumbled into marketing. So what was it about that industry and that sort of functional role that interested you? And how did you end up in that world? My story is a bit different. I didn't stumble into marketing. It was a very deliberate effort. I went to university. I went to Warwick. It was a very corporate university. So from day one, people are doing spring weeks. People are doing like internships, like in the first year. So it's very competitive in that way, not just from an academic point of view, but also from a what job are you getting post like university. So I went to uni to have a great time. Yes, the education, but I also went there to, you know, I guess grown to myself as well. That's why I didn't want to go to university in London. I wanted to like move away and really grow up. In terms of like careers and marketing, I always liked being involved in things around marketing. One of my first work experiences when I was 16 was at Dulwich Picture Gallery, where I walked in and I said, oh, I think your marketing could be better to appeal to a much younger and diverse demographic. And to be honest, thinking about that now, it was quite bold because I was like 16. Um, and Dulwich Picture Gallery is one of, it's just, you know, so beautiful and it's just a bit intimidating. But somehow I um, struck up a friendship with the chairperson at the time who looked after things that were going on in the gallery. And um, I ended up, you know, creating uh, marketing assets and lending my expertise on how to kind of appeal to a different demographic. So I realised I had a very natural gift in sales and marketing and, and things like that. So I guess when I went to university a few years later, I always was interested in, in those areas. And then when I graduated, I knew that I wanted a job that was definitely corporate because it was advertising and going down that route. I knew it wasn't probably the right thing to do at that point because the staff and salaries were much lower than the salaries from the corporate stuff. So I kind of like said to myself, rather than go for the roles that won't appeal to you within banking, why don't you go for like comms and marketing roles as, you know, super creative as advertising roles, but you'd be able to start on a much more reasonable London salary. Advertising, on the other hand, especially back then, 
there was nothing or it was very unpaid it was unpaid so I think for me I made the more like you know strategic decision to get into marketing but in a much more I guess corporate environment okay really interesting and I think it was around that time that you came up with the idea for your book Slay in the Lane so uh, did you always want to become an author and how did you like end up deciding to co-write that book with your friend Yomi that was not a deliberate effort whatsoever it was definitely something I much more stumbled up into and it was because I was in a corporate environment I was you know the only black girl on the marketing team and I was doing well for sure but I knew that there were challenges around how I was perceived as a young black woman that I couldn't get past and those challenges were the things like you know I talk about in a book but trying twice as hard as feeling like you're only getting half as good back not just feeling but also the reality of that I noticed like a difference between how I was treated to how other people's behaviors were perceived as well so I think for me you know you do what most people do you look for books for answer you look into the world you ask questions you're like why 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 sort of thing and Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg at that time was like the book and it changed the game just because it opened up a big conversation about what it is to be a woman in the workplace and so for me I was like well if we're talking about what it is to be a woman in the workplace and you know the elephant in the room is talking about what it is to be a white middle-class woman in the workplace and alongside that I grew up in London and was working in you know Canary Wharf and I would see how diverse it was becoming I'd go to like after work drinks and events that were around like meetups in the city sort of thing and I realised, wow, there's such a diverse workforce like coming through. My parents didn't work in the city in that way. And I know a lot of people's black parents who were black and Asian. A lot of us that I knew like at that time didn't have parents who we could look for for advice and support in that way. It's like, how do you basically email your boss about this when it's perceived like this and all of these different things? So anyway, I was like, well, someone should write a book that which is essentially speaks to what it is to be a young black woman growing like you know not just work in the city but growing up around like London and, and England and what that means to the future and then I asked my best friend Yomi and she was working at Channel 4 at the time as a producer actually but she was freelancing quite heavily in like in the place like the Guardian things like that so it was almost like I said to her can you write this book for me essentially because you'd be the best person to write what this experience is and I think what was interesting is even though her environment was much more liberal and less corporate like she would go to work with like gray hair pink hair so different to you know what you'd find at the 35th floor at HSBC especially back then so but she would still find you know a lot of challenges as well similar challenges so yeah I asked her to write this book and she said well I think we should write it together because this book isn't going to be just the book is going to be a campaign and she said it's going to be a movement and I think back then I was just like I was like oh yeah 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 because I just know like you know a lot of brands and companies throw the word out movement they throw a lot of money to get people to care and I just thought how are we gonna get people to care when we're just like two black girls from South London with like minimal contacts like to say something's gonna be a movement and this was like before social media was like was used for that as well so it was back in 2015. Yeah, so it was a very interesting time. It just wasn't, we didn't see social media in that way. So when she said it, and she said, well, you're the best person that's going to be able to like do that. And, you know, the rest of history, we decided to work on it together. Amazing. What a great story. And, and look, it went on to become a huge success. I know the book was fought for in a nine-way publisher's auction. You received a 
five figure sum for it and won many awards so firstly like huge congratulations i mean for a first time author you know with such a unique concept well you must be so proud and and it's you know all the plaudits are richly deserved i'd love to dig a little bit more into that book because i think it will resonate with a, a lot of people and clearly your experience as a young black woman in the the work force definitely helped inspire what you created how has your experience differed since you wrote the book and now you're a award-winning author and founder you know were you perceived differently as a result and and how has the book inspired and resonated with other black women that then were, were able to read it did you get many interesting kind of anecdotes and stories to see how it impacted them it's so weird to come up with an idea and i use weird deliberately to come up with an idea and then see it gather momentum and gather space and be brought to life so where you it was me you're me who's my co-author and then we got an agent and then we got publishers involved and the team grew and then we would go to events and it would be you know maybe 10 people 50 people and then when we when we published the book we did a guardian live event and we had like dawn butler on one side and after Hirsch on the other side interviewing us and talking to us about Slane Lane and the impact of it. And I remember in the room, there was like 300 people. And I remember before that, I was, me and Yomi were saying that we didn't want to play to an empty crowd. We were making jokes. We were like, oh yeah, Guardian event, that's great, but who are we? No one's going to come to this event. We had such fear that we didn't want to play to an empty crowd. So the fact that a week after the book came out, Back in 2018, we walked out to 300 black women and black men as well. That was humbling. And I think that's when it dawned on me that this thing was going to be bigger than ourselves. So that was super, the impact of staying lane and the conversations it started was very much like, I guess it gathered pace over time. And I think that another thing that also shows just the impact of this book is people, when the book came out, people sent me loads of pictures of people reading it on the train or whatever and I never saw it I never physically saw it and I would always be like oh that's so annoying because I was I just was you know you're so busy you're not even on public you're, you're just kind of like going to events and back to back so you don't really kind of see these things these off-handed things of like people reading your book in places just what people show you on social media and I was like, oh, I've never seen it my friends will take pictures of other people reading a book on a bus or something and I'd be like oh my god that's so cool and then about maybe two years after Stay Lane came out this Pre-pandemic, actually, I was sitting on a train, overground train, to West Croydon, and I saw a white woman reading Slane Lane right in front of me. But as she walked on the train, she opened it up. And I think at that moment, it dawned on me again, <laughs> just what this book was for Black women, is to Black women, but also the conversation it started broadly. I want to make a point about Slane Lane that a misconception, actually. There's a lot of books around and back then there wasn't, but now, post-George Floyd and just post this awakening of the published industry, trying to be more diverse. What I would definitely say is, of all the books that talk about racism, microaggressions, all of that sort of stuff, and I'm not mincing my words here, but Slaying Lane is the book that speaks directly to Black women. And I think that's a misconception. And I think the fact that we do not mince our words in that book, we don't talk about things, we don't explain things to white people and say okay this is what we mean by this this is not even shade to other books that are out there i think that was so pioneering because to directly speak to black women 
and yet you have white women reading the book and white men and black men reading the book that's just perfect a lot of other books around that time and even till now I think it's always about teaching white people or telling white people how to treat us better and Staying Lane didn't do that and I think that if I'm honest with you that's what we're most proud of amongst the so many other things that we're proud of it really set the bar of what it is to create something by black women for black women and in a really authentic way and I don't think a book has been done like that yeah like the fact that you were on a train and a white woman was reading it a book that as you said was for black women written in a certain way that maybe other books haven't been I think that's just a huge amount that others are then picking up to actually like dive into this topic and sort of yeah educate themselves and I think that's so needed and as you said it's not just for black women like I believe there's lots of business leaders could learn a lot from the book so as well as just white people in general do you have any advice for anyone listening to this particularly leaders how they could perhaps learn from some of the things in the book or just in generally help leaders to create more inclusive fairer workspaces yeah one of the things that I realized in this journey is the onus on making a better society or better working world cannot always come from people who are the most disadvantaged by it or the people who experience a lot of biases around it it has come from everybody, but I think the onus cannot solely sit on black women, Asian women, Asian men, like people who, you know, people from the LGBTQ plus community. Like, it can't sit there. The onus has to, like, come from, like you said, like leadership and people who are in positions in order to level the playing field. And no one's asking for handouts. No one's asking for special treatment. What people are asking for is to level the playing field and give people the tools and grace to be the best version of themselves, like whatever that looks like. Even in my privilege now, I, I think about that. The onus isn't on other people to tell me what it's like to live in. It's, like, it's, it's my responsibility. And I think that if we see it like that, then the conversations can be more fruitful as opposed to it feeling sometimes woke versus anti-woke and all of that rubbish, really. So I think that, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Like, I think everybody has a bit of power to be their curiosity and that's why books are so important and literature is so important because that's how you you know grow empathy and understanding and someone else's reality i think that's great advice and i think it transcends this topic but also into the workforce into entrepreneurship like you need to take accountability often for yourself and to educate yourself about lots of different things you can't always blame other people or put it on someone else to, to show you the way and i think that that is is such a good point Before we get back to our conversation, I'd love to tell you about another podcast we think you'll really enjoy. If you're fascinated by the world of entrepreneurship, love hearing the stories of people building amazing businesses, as well as the inside stories behind the sector's biggest flops, then check out The Sifted Podcast. It's a weekly show that covers the biggest news coming out of European tech and startups, including the companies and technologies that are winning investment at the minute, and interviews with some of the superstar founders of tomorrow, including many former 40 Minute Mentors. It also digs into some of the stories these companies would rather you didn't know about, from vanishing investors and huge valuation cuts to the latest scandals hitting some of Europe's biggest startup names. If you want to keep up with what's going on in the world of entrepreneurship in Europe, we think you'll love the Swifted podcast. Moving on to kind of uh, what happened next, you clearly caught the writing bug. So you wrote another book 
inspired by the pandemic, the reset. So can you tell our audience a little bit about what that book uh, was all about? Where did the inspiration come from? Yeah, so I, I've written five books now, five different books in five years. And The Reset was my fourth book that came about after, it was my most, yeah, my most significant book I wrote with myself, as in, no, it wasn't co-authored. And it came off the back of experiencing life post slaying lane. And I realised that a lot of people were fed up of the workplace. It wasn't just black women. It was white men as well. It was mothers. There were so many different like demographics that I realised were all saying the same thing in different ways and were all essentially in various stages of despair. And back in 2019, I myself was a little bit in despair. I was like, well, what am I going to do the rest of my life? Not the rest of my life, but what am I going to do now? You know, do I want a job? What do I want my day to look like, essentially? And I just kept on thinking about that. And I spoke to Karen Blackett, who is like an amazing mentor, but also someone who has just got time for people. And I really appreciate that. And she's just amazing at what she does. She's like such a powerhouse. I met up with Karen Blackett and she said to me, your problem is you don't know your personal brand. Your personal brand has shifted from what it was before to what it is now. And you need to realise that you don't know, like, what do you stand for sort of thing? Like, what do you want your day to look like? What environments, what kind of work environment do you want to work in? Like, you need to write it down. And I was just like, yeah. And she said some things that I look back and go, okay, that made sense. So once I utilised that, read a little bit about, okay, what do I want my day to look like? You know, what do I, what am I working towards and things like that? Then everything started clicking for me a little bit more. I was able to be like, okay, cool, maybe I should have a column, like, you know, a column. So I, you know, I reached out to the FT. I wrote something about burnout for them because everybody was experiencing, like there was this BuzzFeed article that went super viral and people were talking about burnout. It was the first time as a millennial kind of thing. So I kind of like said to the FT, oh yeah, I should write, I would like to write something about, you know, that from a, everyone experienced burnout, not just millennials, but because it's just a sign of like the way our modern work is. It's, you know, if you don't experience burnout, then you're part of the probably lucky few. And then that did really well. And then they offered me a column to write more. So that was great. So I kind of like realised that, okay, wow, I'm actually creating the working world that I actually want to be in. And I was like, well, if I'm doing that, not what's stopping other people, but what are the challenges other people experience? And then there was just like, there was an ONS study that came out saying that, you know, self-employment was at its all-time high and people were leaving the workplace for this reason and that reason and all kind of like cited the same thing which is like the lack of flexibility so I pitched the idea of the reset to an editor and I said you know what I would like to write about you know back then it was called you know work isn't working or something like that and yeah and then the pan so I started working on it literally December 2019 January 2020 and then the pandemic hit obviously March 2020 and then yeah and then you can't write about work without thinking it to the, the biggest shake-up in how we work and live since you know the World War II so yeah and the reset I think as well just to say like I didn't want to write another book about working harder I didn't want to write a book that was telling millennials or telling anybody that you know it's all about this it's all about them basically changing the way they work I wanted to write a book that looked at the holistic way that we all work and how it impacts each other and a much more community-driven way to work and a way that means that right now I'm literally sitting in my bay window in South Croydon where I live, but I should be able to go to the local high street that is less than, it's a very typical British high street that is not great, betting shops and all these different kind of like things. 
and there should be a space to work there because I'm otherwise I have to go all the way to central London to find a workspace. So it's about tapping into our communities in a much more like holistic way. It's about using our cities differently. So all these different concepts that people were talking to, 15 minute city, to all these different things, I kind of put it into the reset to kind of have make people think differently about where they work now and what they could work like. But we all needed to do it together. And, more, and then so the pandemic provided that foundation in us thinking differently. So it's so interesting. It's actually really relevant what you just said, because we've had Freddie Ford, the founder of Patch, recently on the podcast, who has created this unique concept of work near home. They're taking buildings like old Debenhams buildings or old, old buildings that have kind of on the high street that have now gone into disrepair and they left a real hole in the, the, this heart of many communities. And he's transforming those into places you can work near home. So not work from home, but work near home. So commuter towns up and down the country. And it's not just about a workspace. It's about a community. It's about giving back to the local economy. It's about bringing people together and exploring creativity and various things. And, and I think it's going to be huge. Absolutely. It's already getting amazing traction. And you're so right. The pandemic has transformed the way we all work. It's, you know, who would have thought 10 years ago, we could work fully remotely. Who would have thought there was this thing called hybrid? I mean, and I don't know if anyone's like totally cracked it or there has to be one way for everybody. I think what's great, as you said, is flexibility. And for, for us as headhunters in the tech space, the greatest benefit that companies can give employees now is flexibility. It's the most important thing that people are looking for. And that's something that we've, you know, really implemented at, at JBM as well. Really, really interesting. It sounded like you, like a lot of us actually in a difficult spot a couple of years ago before you wrote the reset, we have seen firsthand how many candidates and clients of ours, particularly founders, have burnt out from the hustle culture, from, you know, just the pandemic living where we arguably worked more <laughs> and like lots of people got very lonely, lots of people were very isolated. So it's been a tough few years. You clearly had your own reset. What are some of your now daily habits that you've kind of built in or practices that you use or do to look after your own well-being and mental health and do you have any advice for anyone else that's listening to this that might be on that kind of brink of burnout right now what can they do to to kind of turn things around and get into a better place yeah so i think control is a really big one and i think that you have to number one work out what's important to you and how you like to work because when it's all said and done, we have one life and not to be so morbid, but the reality is like you have to make the most of the world that we see in front of us. So I like to do this exercise with like people and my friends or it's in the last chapter of my book, The Reset, where I talk about what does a good day look like to you? And for me, that helped me clarify the way I want to work. So what does a good day look like to you from little things? Do you do exercise in the morning? Are you an early bird or you're a late riser? What are the little things that make you you and make you happy because those things ladder up to the big things like my friend said to me the other day I said something and she was like you're so excited about the little things and I was like yeah because if you don't take pleasure in the little things when the big things come you're not gonna be able to take pleasure in them and I think that I realized that with like writing a book that was massively successful as my debut book because I think I took a lot of things for granted so when it comes to how I like to live and how I like to work I realized that yeah, it's helped me kind of shape those things because those two things are strictly linked. You have to be able to look at your day and say, I don't like doing meetings in the afternoon. It's not really my vibe. Like unless like it's a, a working meeting like in town or face to face, I don't like doing sitting on Zooms in the afternoon. So I really try my best to put on my meetings in the morning before two o'clock. That just means that 
in the afternoon, I can do X, Y, Z, I can drop off laundry. So, you know, there's all these little things that you think that don't matter, but we've seen like with the pandemic, like the fact that people were able to go to their local coffee shop and have more, like have coffee in the morning and all of that sort of stuff. People were talking about how transformative these little things were. And I think that if you do not fight for the little things in your day, you will be so shocked about how the big things impact you. So I think that like, even if it's 10 minutes, you have to really think about what are the things that make you who you are. I'm nothing without coffee. It doesn't have to be so serious. Like I actually need a coffee to function in the morning. You know, I know it sounds so like whimsical, but I think that my biggest point I'm trying to say is like, you have to think about what you want your day to look like. Because if your day is not laddering up to a good life, then you have to ask yourself, what is this all for then? And I know I can, even, I can say this as a someone who has, you know, privilege, but it's something that I ask to anybody. Like one of the biggest misconceptions that we have about how we work and live is that we have no power. And I think it's deliberately positioned that way, that you are a child in this relationship at work or your boss can say to you, you can't go on lunch. Like, I remember when I went into the workplace and I it was a designated lunchtime. I was so confused. I thought I'd regressed. I was like, this was like primary school. Honestly, I think I could never survive the traditional workplace because I just realized like that bugs me. I can only go from lunch from 12 to, to two. That's crazy. Like, so, and I think control is a big part of that. And I think it's just being able to look at your day and say, what does a good day look like? Sorry, I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, you really did. It's re- I thank you for your honesty. And I think everyone listening to this, this may be a little good exercise to just take a few minutes out to think about that. And for me, it's it's as simple as playing with my daughter in the garden, you know, playing catch or having a coffee with my wife and, you know, going for a little walk and just like here in nature. It's so easy to be on your phone the whole time and just be so consumed by tech and social media and work and all that stress. And, and I found in the, the lockdown particularly, it was those little things. It was a, a chat with our neighbours over the fence because that was the only interaction we were getting outside the family. It was, you know, all those little things. And you realise just there's so many beautiful things. There's so much joy in life and in the little things that you really, really miss. If they weren't there, it would be very like detrimental to your life. And But you don't really think about it or appreciate them. So I think just taking a bit more time for that will help bring more perspective and hopefully enjoyment to every day. A quick question is, just for anyone listening to this, that is kind of hearing your story and going, wow, I've always had this idea for a book, or I really want to be an author or a journalist one day. Have you got any just little pointers for anybody, things they can do if they want to kind of go down that path? I think there's so many different like you can go on the internet and look at so many different tips and hints about how to get a book deal or what to write and all that sort of stuff. But, and everyone's very, it's very different for everyone. But I would say that my universal advice to anyone who is a writer or wants to write anything doesn't have to be, we're all writers. Like we we write every single day. So anybody who wants to write a piece of work, such as a book or, or anything like that, my number one universal advice is write what you know. I think that people, I even see this in established writers at this point. Like, I think that sometimes it's easy because of social media to play into write what you think people want. And I think we've all been trained to have this like very clickbaity attitude to where we, to way we relay our own experiences. So I was saying to a friend yesterday, she said something and I was, I was like, that's such a TikTok soundbite. Like if you put that on TikTok, I remember someone said to me, oh, they think in Instagram like images because they go, oh my God, that's so, because I do it. I go, that's so Instagrammable. Like, so I think that it's been translated to what we write. And I always say one of the reasons that Selene Lane did so well 
was because we were very specific in what we wrote. And I think people are afraid to be niche and to be specific because I think they want that catch them all, like what comes from like mass. But I think if you write, there's that saying, the more specific an experience, the more universal it is. And I think that you have to write from what you know. Two black girls from South London wrote a book that resonated with thousands of people in the UK, in America. There's a reason why. I have a bad habit. Even when I'm doing something and I'm making a decision, I go, oh, how is this going to impact X, Y, and Z people? I really think to myself, no, 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 no. You've got to think from a very granular point of view. So even building story, I, like, I have to think from that point of view, because if not, if you build for everyone, no one will come. Like you have to build for very, you know, you have to write from a very specific point of view. And that's your superpower. I think people underestimate how if you think this thing and you experience this, there are thousands of people, probably millions, like who will also have this experience. And that's what you need to, if you go for everyone, you're just never going to, it's never going to balance. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think, again, there's there's links there with some founder stuff as well. But obviously, a lot of people listening to this are aspiring founders. And I think it's sometimes imposter syndrome can get in the way of progress or, or putting things out in the world. And a bit like how you might think, oh, what I know isn't going to be interesting to anybody other than me and my tribe. It's similar with a startup. Some of the best ideas are just where somebody has spotted something that is, you know, they're frustrated with or just is like a personal frustration or challenge that they they want to fix. And similarly, they're not always the most sexy things. You might think, oh, it's, it's not that interesting to build a, you know, storage, a disruptive storage company. But we've spoke with one this week that are totally disrupting the storage space. It's not the sexiest one, but it's a huge, huge thing. It's like, it's a business that has, you know, lots of incumbents that have been around for years. It's not very like digitized. And so some of the, you know, the biggest opportunities, the biggest kind of markets to go after are some of the obvious and and, and not always the the sexiest. So I think there's something to be said for, yeah, stick to what you know, stick to what you're passionate about or something that even if it's just something that annoys you or or a problem, you'll be surprised how that will resonate with many, many other people. We've kind of sort of teased our audience about Storia and we've got to get get into talking about that before we close so you clearly had a career as a successful author you've worked in marketing and now you're adding this other string to your bow as startup founders so tell our listeners if you don't mind Elizabeth a bit more about what Storia is who's it for and where did the idea come from yeah um so I've had like you know some success with writing as an author a lot of like I guess external success so awards and things like that but actually one of the biggest successes I've had with writing came before I became an author it came from a more personal development and journaling side of things and it's changed the way I see the world and I guess I want to cultivate that at scale so I think that's the essence of what story is it's a journaling and mindfulness platform that helps people essentially write themselves better and I say write yourself better is so write yourself better is our as our end line. And that's just because I fundamentally believe that journaling and writing essentially makes you a better person, a better thinker, a better speaker, all of those things, and a more centered human being as well. And I think that in a world that means that we were so plugged into other people's points of view, if it be on Twitter, other people's image of themselves, if it's you know Instagram or other people essentially there are very few places where you can really tune into who you are and nurture that at every point in your life and I think journaling has helped me do that I look I've got some of my old journeys to this day 
both digital and like on my notes app and as well as like physical I've moved houses like you know I've moved house like you know eight times or something since age of 21 when I graduated from university I've carried those journals everywhere with me because they are like a record of you know who I am and my journey and I think that there's a really interesting stat that's you know talks around like things like eight is it 70 percent of people think that their lives are are interesting enough for uh, a Hollywood movie and that's because we are all living in our own we're all our main characters in our in our lives and I think journaling helps you cultivate that put that on paper or put that on the digital form so story is essentially yeah it's, it's essentially um, that and I'm super excited to build it and build a community of people who believe in the power of storytelling in various ways so yes we're starting with you know writing but there are so many different things in store that means that we can lend itself to build this universe of, of people who believe in the power of like the written word amazing what a great idea and uh, it is key as you said so many ways that writing and journaling can help our listeners and, and and anyone that gets involved so i'd massively encourage others to check it out when we met uh not too long ago you described it as the headspace for writers which i just love that I love that concept. I love that. I really think that will resonate with a lot of people. How have you found the process of, of building a startup so far? So it's definitely different to what you've done before. And I know firsthand how challenging it can be. What, what have you found the most difficult obstacles and challenges along the way? And, and how have you overcome those? So some of the challenges that I found is probably loneliness. I definitely been spoiled as an author because four out of my five books have been co-written so far so I always had like a best friend my right hand woman as well as like my co-author wrapped up into one so I never felt lonely a lot of the experiences that people have with writing as an author you feel as even as a founder you, you know it can be a very lonely journey so I guess that was doing something as big as this by myself I think the immediate feeling is just oh wow like not just it's not about you know working hard it's just sometimes it's mostly just comes down to having people around you that understand what you're doing. So I think that has been my one of my biggest things. And I think I'm so lucky that I've been able to tap into, you know, founder communities and, you know, female founder um, dinners and all of these things because it matters because you realise you're not alone. So I think that has been probably the biggest barrier. Yeah, it's so true. So as a solo founder myself, I've relied on mentorship other founders founder communities and it, it's really helped i've relied a lot on my wife as well um i think you can go a bit crazy talking to the wall and so getting the right people around you that can kind of uh yeah be that shoulder to cry on and that sounding board is super important i'm sure lots of our listeners are going to rush to check story out what can they expect when they access the app so the app hasn't launched just yet, but there will be a link that I'll give you after this, James, which is just like a landing page, our website, essentially, so people can sign up to early access. So, yeah, people can expect, I guess, a tool for thinking, expression and creativity. And I think it's interesting. There's, there was a stat that says that 54 percent of people want to share the challenges and how they have overcome that in writing. And I think that we're building a the community and a product that helps people do just that amazing what a great idea I'm, I'm so excited to learn more well Elizabeth thank you so much for joining us we've got our final three wrap-up questions for you but I'm sure we'll be catching up again before long in one sentence what do you think the future holds for you and for Storia I want to build a global brand that essentially 
changes the way people think and the way people write and the way people express themselves. So in whatever form that comes in, I'll be happy. That's a bold aim. I love it. Finally, Elizabeth, what's the best advice you've ever received? Today, the advice would be be yourself because everyone is taken. And I say that as a young black woman who would look at magazines growing up and it would like there would be no representation of that or who you are or you would watch TV. And, and there's so many different things in life that means that we are told being ourselves is not enough, that we must be more. We must buy this to be better. We must do this to get through that. And sometimes just being who you are and really growing in that is all you need to become the person who you always want to look up, always, always want to be. So I would say, yeah, be yourself because everyone is taken. Brilliant advice to finish this episode, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us, sharing your uh, unique story. And we wish you all the very best, always story over the years ahead. I'm sure it's going to be super successful. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, James. Thank you so much again for tuning into today's episode. And if you did enjoy it, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It really does mean the world to us and helps us to spread the power of mentorship even further. Also, if you have any suggestions of future guests you'd like to hear from, please do drop us a line at info at jbmc.co.uk. See you again next week when I'm joined by Joe Robinson, the CEO of Improbable Defense. Joe and I have a fascinating conversation covering all sorts of topics from his time at the MOD, the future of the metaverse, and his advice on hiring and nurturing diverse and high-performing teams. It's not one to miss. Here are a few snippets from our conversation. It's a relatively personal one, but I, but I was sort of critically ill when I was a bit younger, about sort of 10 years ago. And, you know, it was a real, a real sort of personal setback for me. And, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me sort of who my, who my friends really were, it taught me about the importance of kind of mental resilience and how to kind of be comfortable in your own company and reset the expectations on yourself as an individual when you're sort of prioritizing living first as a kind of baseline and then, you know, get a kind of working beyond that. To be really frank, I wanted to go out and fight for the country. And I think as a leader, you've got to call that out often. You've got to say, look, what we're doing is really difficult. This is painful. This is going to hurt us. It's going to be a difficult situation to get and accept that and embrace that and kind of get over that and then say, but look, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it together. We won't all want to experience the same metaverse. We'll want to experience our own, you know, our own flavor of, of the metaverse, our own types of virtual worlds, which will no doubt in the first instance be built on existing IP.